Well, back in 2019, we studied here at Good Shepherd the opening chapters of Genesis, finishing with the Tower of Babel. Today, two uneventful years later, we are picking things up from where we left off, and we plan to go from chapter 11 to chapter 25. Those 14 or so chapters deal with Abraham. And so they're sometimes known as the Abraham narrative. Our second Bible reading is Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32. This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was a hundred years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscar. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, the wife of his son, Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Please do leave that page open so we can look at the passage together during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus says, Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. 
Father God, we have to admit that our ears are often not good at hearing what you say to us in your word. And so as your word is preached, please would you give us ears to hear, would we use them to hear. In Jesus' name, Amen. What can we hope to get out of the Old Testament passage I've just read? It's a list of names and births, followed by a few extra biographical details about a man named Terah and his family. Can there really be transformational truth for us in that Bible passage? It might seem unlikely, but the Apostle Paul would urge us to give this passage the time of day. In Romans 15, Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul speaks of the encouragement of the Scriptures, and he's not just thinking of a handful of Old Testament passages, David and Goliath, Moses and Pharaoh. No, Paul says, Whatever was written, in former days, was written for our instruction. And according to Paul, we need that instruction for our endurance and our encouragement. So as we study this passage from Genesis 11, we should expect to find God-given instruction to help us endure in the Christian life, while also lifting our spirits. Today's passage speaks of God's purposes and also the roadblocks that seem to get in the way of God's purposes from our point of view. And that's how the rest of the sermon will break down. We'll look first at God's purposes and then at the seeming roadblocks that appear to prevent the fulfillment of those purposes. Let's begin then with God's purposes. Verse 10 says, This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was a hundred years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. With that brief mention of the flood in verse 10, the writer of Genesis reminds us that far from watching history unfold as a passive spectator, God is instead in charge of the unfolding. He's involved in our history. He's working his purposes out. Then towards the end of the passage, the writer of Genesis mentions Abram. He's mentioned six times from verse 26 onwards. Abram is later called Abraham, which is the name I'll use for him in this sermon. And Abraham, like the flood, points to God's involvement in world history. If you sang the song Father Abraham as a child, you'll know he had many sons. Through God's gracious intervention, Abraham became the father of the family of faith. In the New Testament, he's described as the father of all who believe. So the start and the end of the passage, the flood, Abram, highlight two examples of God working purposefully in human history. But that leaves the middle of the passage, all those names. Why are they included? What do they tell us about God's purposes? Verse 10 introduces the name list that goes down through verse 26 as the account of Shem, the account of Shem. 
Shem was a survivor of the flood, as you can tell from verse 10, if you do a little bit of math, two years after the flood when Shem was 100 years old. And Shem's family line forms a bridge between the flood and Abraham. We could call it a bloodline bridge or just a blood bridge. This blood bridge provides evidence of God's trustworthiness. It demonstrates that God is faithful to his promises. He works his purposes out. By this point in Genesis, God has already laid out a salvation plan on his architect's table. In Genesis 3, God promised the first humans, Adam and Eve, that one of their male descendants would do what they had failed to do in the Garden of Eden. He will crush the serpent. He will triumph over the devil. That was God's plan A. And it could only continue beyond the flood if humanity continued beyond the flood. If the flood had destroyed all of humanity, plan A would have been like an architect's unwanted blueprint scrunched up and tossed in a waste paper basket. God's plan A required an unbroken bloodline from the first humans, Adam and Eve, all the way through to the promised saviour. Anything that put an end to that ongoing bloodline would also put an end to God's plan A. But praise God, humanity was not completely destroyed by the flood. In his mercy, God preserved one family, Noah, Noah's wife, their three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shem, and the wives of those three sons, eight people in all. So God kept his serpent-crushing plan on his architect's desk. It's not scrunched up and tossed to one side. Plan A is ongoing. And this name list in Genesis 11 underlines the active status of plan A by showing how flood survivor Shem connects with Abraham, the father of all who believe. The blood bridge in Genesis 11 tells us that God is keeping his serpent-crushing promise. God's plan A looks toward one promised saviour. And if you think about how one future descendant fits into a family tree, the brothers and sisters along the way, the aunts and uncles, nephews and nieces, they're not hugely relevant. A family tree looking toward one future individual can be narrowed down to one single line of descent, parent to child, parent to child, parent to child, parent to child, and so on. That's what's happening here with the Genesis 11 blood bridge. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the particular bloodline that will lead to Jesus, the serpent crusher. That's why Noah's other sons, Ham and Japheth, exit the stage in the previous chapter, leaving Shem by himself there in verse 10. The divinely inspired author knows that Shem, not Ham or Japheth, Shem, is the parent of the parent of the parent, and so on down to Christ. The same kind of thing happens throughout this list of names. Every odd-numbered verse down to verse 25 mentions other sons and daughters. None of them are named. 
They all exit the stage, like Shem's brothers Ham and Japheth. The inspired author shines a beam of light on the one line of descent leading to the champion who will triumph over Satan. This list of names shows that God is closely tracking his promise from one generation to the next. With each became the father of, God brings human history closer to the serpent-crushing champion we need. Most of Steven Spielberg's Holocaust movie Schindler's List is filmed in black and white. But there's one very young girl in the movie who's shown wearing a red coat. In the midst of all that black and white, her red coat is impossible to miss. It's a way of drawing attention to the girl and her fate. This name list in Genesis 11 is similar. Among the rapidly regrowing human population after the flood, among all those other sons and daughters, it's as if the people named from verse 10 to verse 25 are all wearing red coats. The inspired author of Genesis is saying, look here, give these names your attention. Don't be distracted by all those other sons and daughters. These are the names that count. This is the blood bridge that matters. The Bible reader who remembers the promise of Genesis 3.15 can see in these names proof of God's faithfulness. The promise still stands. Under God's guiding hand, the inspired writer of Genesis knows which names are the red coat names, the names that will lead to the promised saviour. The name list here in chapter 11 stops us from treating Abraham as God's plan B. As we'll see in a moment, Abraham plays a major part in the development of God's salvation plan. He's a big biblical cheese, but he doesn't represent a new plan. He's not plan B. The name list of Genesis 11 connects Abraham with all that has gone before so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that God's original plan has somehow failed. Thanks to this name list, we see that Abraham fits into that original plan instead of representing the start of a new plan. Plan A is ongoing. Plan A is Jesus Christ, humanity's champion who conquers Satan and all our enemies and offers eternal life in a world without sin or pain. God sticks with plan A all the way through the Bible. We need to grasp this point because it reassures us that God doesn't make mistakes. He sticks to the original plan, working out his original purposes. And yet God's plan is richer and more multi-layered than just Shem became the father of Arphaxad, Arphaxad became the father of Shelah, Shelah became the father of Eber, and so on all the way until we reach Jesus. There's more to God's salvation plan than just a family line, as important as that family line is. Two layers are added to God's plan A in the time of Abraham, the nation layer and the land layer. From Abraham's time onward, the promised saviour was tied to just one ethnic group and just one patch of territory. Now we know from elsewhere in the Bible that Abraham was told about those nation and land features of God's plan while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Abraham knew about the nation and land components of God's plan while he was still back in Ur. Keep that in mind and look at verses 30 and 31 from Abraham's point of view. Verses 30 and 31. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Think about that from Abraham's point of view. Abraham's wife is barren, so at this point the future looks bleak for the nation part of God's plan. How can Abraham become the father of a nation if his wife is barren? What's more, the land part of the plan is also on hold, unfulfilled, because the whole family has settled in Haran. The promised land was Canaan, to the south of Haran. According to Acts chapter 7, Abraham only left Haran after the death of his father Terah. So it looks as if Terah, the head of that household, has put his foot down and said, No to Canaan. Haran is the place for us. From Abraham's point of view, verses 30 and 31 describe a time when God's salvation plan seems to have been thwarted by roadblocks. Abraham's wife is supposed to mother a nation. She's barren. They're supposed to go to the promised land, but the family has hunkered down in a city outside the promised land. Those seeming roadblocks must have tempted Abraham at this point in time to give up on God's plan. And that brings us to the second half of the sermon. We've been thinking about God's purposes. Let's now consider the seeming roadblocks that appear to threaten his purposes. That's our second heading, seeming roadblocks. The original readers of the book of Genesis would have found Abraham's situation highly relevant. There are good biblical reasons for thinking that Genesis was written by Moses, which means the first audience for Genesis was the people of Israel, on their way from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. Imagine how strongly Abraham's situation would have resonated with that original audience. They were held up in the wilderness outside Canaan, just as Abraham had also been held up outside of Canaan. They faced seemingly insurmountable obstacles, such as the fortified cities and frightening armies of the nations living in Canaan. Abraham also faced a seemingly insurmountable obstacle, his wife's barrenness. The Israelites in the wilderness should have tuned in carefully to Abraham's story because their situation was very similar. They were also confronted by roadblocks that challenged their faith in God's plan. But the relevance of Abraham's situation isn't limited to that original audience in the desert outside Canaan. His situation is also relevant to us. We too can find ourselves confronted by seeming roadblocks that challenge our faith in God's plan. Perhaps in your case there are particular commands in the Bible that you know you need to keep out of love for Jesus but they seem too hard for you to keep. For now, you're still battling to obey those commands, but you wonder how long you can keep up the fight. 
Or perhaps you feel God has led you down a career path that has become a dead end. Your life is stuck. And ditching your faith in Jesus seems like one possible way out. Perhaps your marriage is going through such a difficult patch that you can't imagine persevering with it. Even though you know Jesus wants you to stay true to your vows. Or perhaps singleness has become so hard for you that you're losing confidence in God's power to strengthen you to stay true to Christian teaching about sexual purity. Or perhaps chronic ill health seems like a roadblock to you. Maybe you've received a a bad long-term diagnosis and you're not sure how long you can carry on giving glory to God even though you know that's what Christians are supposed to do. Abraham did not allow the roadblocks to God's promises to crush his faith. As we'll see next week, Abraham left Haran and got to Canaan. He continued believing in God's plan despite Sarah's decades of barrenness. And when the time was right, God enabled Sarah to conceive and have a child. God has shown that he will stay true to his plan. God faithfully keeps his promises when our life experience isn't unfolding as we hope it will. That does not put an end to God's salvation plan. God stays true to his purposes. He has always stayed true to plan A. That's something we should know even better than Abraham because we live on the other side of the coming of Jesus Christ. The Saviour has come. And through his death on the cross, he's crushed our enemy, the devil. The devil's hold over us was our sin. But Jesus took that sin upon himself and received the punishment for it when he died on the cross. God's word of hope can be trusted. If you're listening today, perhaps uh, through our live stream, and you'd say uh, you're not yet uh, a follower of Jesus yourself, you're not yet trusting in his salvation plan, please stick with these weekly sermons. Thank you for listening today. Please keep tuning in. Keep finding out more about how God has stayed true to his salvation plan. We have evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises. His promises will come to pass. And those who are not trusting in his promises face the warning of God's punishment. Throughout the Bible, those not trusting in God's promises are urged to put their trust in him and believe so that they too can join in with his plan and be on the right side of his plan and live forever with him in the perfect world that is coming. For those of us who are believers, God won't necessarily overcome our roadblocks in the way we might want him to. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches. The health and wealth gospel and the prosperity gospel is false. 
But if we look to God with faith, he will overcome our roadblocks as roadblocks to Christian discipleship. He will overcome our roadblocks insofar as they are roadblocks to Christian discipleship. What seem like giant roadblocks to us are less than specks of dust in God's sight. They seem like roadblocks to us. They are not roadblocks to him. Look to him. Appeal to him. And by his power, those roadblocks won't prevent you following Jesus. God's plan A will stay on track just as it always has. And God can overcome whatever it is in your life that threatens to stop you trusting in that plan. Bill Cunningham was a a neighbor of my parents-in-law in in Birmingham, Alabama. At the end of last year, he began a battle with COVID-19 that lasted for four months. During that time, he went through three rounds of pneumonia. He suffered from massive blood clots. His toes were amputated. He experienced sepsis and septic shock. He had three drainage tubes inserted into his chest. He was on a ventilator for 15 weeks. Finally, in late April, he died. At some point during his sickness, a photo was taken of Bill Cunningham on his hospital bed. One of his children, uh, his grown-up children, put it on Instagram and uh, Betsy showed it to me. I've often thought about it since. In the photo, Bill is sitting up in his hospital bed. There are various tubes connected to him, but he's smiling and he's holding up a whiteboard with these words written on it, God has no plan B. That's all it said. God has no plan B. It was a little cryptic. Betsy and I had to talk it over to figure out what exactly he meant, but we agreed in the end that Bill was saying, God doesn't make mistakes. As it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, God works in all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God doesn't make mistakes. Despite all that COVID-19 was throwing at him, Bill was still trusting in God's plan A. His plan to send us a saviour descended from humanity's first parents who would triumph over humanity's greatest enemies, the devil, sin and death. Bill was right. God has no plan B. With God it has always been plan A. And whatever roadblocks to faith might lie in our path, If we look to him, he will help us to keep on trusting in his plan A. Let's pray to God for his help now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your plan A is still on track. We see its outworking even more than Abraham did because we live on the other side of the sending of your son, Jesus, our saviour. Humanity's promised champion came into our world. He did triumph over our enemy, the devil, as promised. We thank you that we can share in his triumph through the forgiveness of sins. 
We pray, Heavenly Father, for any listening, not yet following Jesus. Please keep them listening to your plan. We pray that by your Spirit they would put their trust in it. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, you would help help those of us who are trusting in your plan to keep trusting in it. Help us to see the roadblocks in front of us with your eyes. Give us confidence that with your help, those roadblocks will not prevent us from trusting in your plan to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.